Blog Talk Radio. Way down among Brazilians, coffee beans grow by the billions, so they've got to find those extra cups to fill. They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda, cause they've got to fill that quota. And the way things are, I'll bet they never will. They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil. No tea or tomato juice, you'll see. No potato juice, cause the planters down in Santa's all say no, no, no. The politician's daughter was accused of drinking water And was fined the great big $50 bill They've got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil Like a percolator Her perfume was made right on the grill Why they could percolate the ocean in Brazil And when their ham and eggs need savor Coffee ketchup gives them flavor Coffee pickles way outsell the dill Why they put coffee in the coffee in Brazil No tea No tomato juice You'll see, no potato juice. The planters down in Santa's all say no, no, no. So you led to the local color, serving coffee with a crawler. Duncan doesn't take a lot of skill. They've got an awful lot of coffee, an awful lot of coffee. Man, they got a gang of coffee in Brazil. Well, hi, everyone. This is Jorianne, the Coffee Psychic, your host of Your Psychic Connection. And uh, we're going to have a really, really, really great show today. Uh, we've got a wonderful guest. Our guest is um, S.J. Seeds, um, Scott. And he's going to um, come on the show with us tonight, uh, today and talk to us about remote viewing. So we've had Scott recently in the past, and Scott has been so... Um, how can I say it, fascinating with his research, the stories, um, stuff that people really wouldn't think, um, you know, the, the well, heck, we should just give him a, uh, bring him on the show here, but things that you wouldn't think were a certain way, who would have thunk it, right? So Scott's done a lot of research. He's worked with Joe McMonagall, a gentleman from the, um, armies or the military's remote viewing area that was shut down they said um to say for sure that's the way i look at it you know it's our government and um there there our government is always doing uh wonderful work with investigating things so this should be a very exciting show so let's have scott join us right now and we'll let you guys know about the remote viewing what happened during some of the sessions, and uh, see what you guys think. And then, of course, we'd like you guys to join in. This is a live call-in show, and, of course, the number is uh, 347-633-9404. 347-633-9404. Please call in. If you guys have had any experiences with remote viewing or astral projection or anything like that, give us a call. All right, and now we're going to uh, talk to Scott. Scott, good Hello? morning. Jury, hey, welcome yes. to the show. Well, good to be here. 
Yes, yes. So exciting. So um, in, this, in this one, I think, um, based on following up from the previous show with regards to the uh, military intelligence unit and how it came about, I was maybe just going to mention a, uh, very quickly uh, sum up what we mentioned for people who didn't have a chance to hear the first show. Is that Yeah, yeah, we want to idea? let them know what remote viewing is because they might not even know what remote viewing or astral projection is at all. So would you tell people what that is, in your opinion? Well, yeah, um, remote viewing is the ability to, um, well, see things uh, in a different time in a different space and report on exactly uh, what it is that you see there. And um, in the military intelligence level remote viewing, it's all paperwork. Everybody sits down and they do stuff and they write and they draw. And uh, and so this is the report. They don't really talk as much as – it's not necessary that they talk all that much as long as they write it down. And um, so – and then these reports, in the case of the military, would then go back to the Pentagon based on what kind of a target they had tasked uh, to see what the information was that the – well, in this case, it was a 902nd military intelligence unit at Fort Meade, Maryland. What these guys were providing that would help – CIA or you know DIA or whoever it was that, that is sent the tasking in. So um, yeah, but I want. But yeah, so remote viewing is the ability to look at a target. Remote astral projector in one. Hang on a second, Scott. You're actually in one location. Yep. You are not. You are not going traveling anywhere. It it's a sense no. of being in a, a a one location. You're sitting there more in a meditative state, and you start focusing on a target, and then uh, in your mind, and there's a protocol to follow. So it's a little like daydreaming yes. or another word that I've uh, had an experience with is astral projection, just so people know that it's not something where they pack their bags and go somewhere. Oh, no, no, no. It's, you know, the, like, well, there's no way that you can go to these places. Like like in the, in the case that we we're going to speak about today being Princess Diana's auto accident, you can't go there. It's all over. It's been cleaned up. There's, <laughs> there's yes. nothing to go see. Yes, that's for the sure. The tunnel it, it, it <laughs> so, no, it's... And, you know, astral projection is not a word that they use, and so I'm not really familiar with any differences or how they match up between that and, and remote viewing. I, I, I don't know that part of it. Sure. But um, at any rate, um, this is what these guys did, and, and they, uh, as, in, in what was ultimately came to be known as Operation Stargate. So I didn't know if you wanted to have any of the uh, – the background with regards to how it started or anything, or did you want to just go directly in to uh No, I think it would be lovely. How, how did it start? Okay, yeah, the, um, you know, the Russians were involved with this, and um, by 1968, the, the U.S. military intelligence was able to confirm that the Russians were involved with um, trying to manipulate things tele- telekinetically, and one of the things that they were trying to do was... Um, and it sounds it sounds terrible, but they were trying to kill frogs, and they would do this by introducing a, a atrial fibrillation, which they call an AFib, and that would then cause a heart attack, and the frog would die of a heart attack. And they were wow. successful in doing this. And the uh, CIA took notice of that that this that they had the ability to do this. Another thing that they were able to do was to uh, put a PhD in mathematics in a different room, and then focus on the guy. And the uh, the guy couldn't do mathematics anymore, just basic arithmetic. He didn't have the ability to do any higher function in the mathematical area, even though he had a Ph.D. for as long as they were focused on him. That was another thing, <clears throat> kind of a disruptive thing. And well, um, I want to jump in doing... here then, Scott. Let me, tell you, All right. let me tell you real quickly. I've gone to the Monroe Institute several times, and that's where Joe McMonagall and Skip Atwater went when the um, – program closed down in uh, the government, and they started doing their work out of the Monroe Institute. And the Monroe Institute um, hosts many classes on astral projection, remote viewing, um, all these different types of things for your spiritual growth. I, and just with what you were speaking to right now, I was in a class, and um, or I was in one of the classes, and they were telling us about a previous class they had where there were all guys in the class and one lady, one woman. And she was so beautiful. And so what you do is you, you know, you go into a room to uh, debrief. But before the debrief, you go into your little check unit where your bed is, and you have your headphones on. And then through your headphones, you know, you're in a lying down uh, position. 
through your headphones, they will put in your meditation. And then when you're done, you go and do the debrief. Well, people were going around the room saying what they experienced, but when it came to the lady, she said, it was terrible. She goes, I, it was completely dark. All I saw was black. She goes, I, I couldn't uh, get out. I couldn't do anything else. And she goes, but it was completely black for me. And then the one guy said, he goes, well, I've got to tell you, you were so distracting for me that I put you in my box. And what it is is they have you make a box mentally, yeah. and you put all of your distractions or issues in that box. So the one guy said, you're so beautiful, you were distracting to me. I couldn't you know, straight, you know, know, straight, set my mind straight, so I just threw you in my box. All of the guys admitted to putting her in their boxes, so she literally was put in a box, and that's exactly what you just said. And this is the second time I'm hearing this now, so that gives me more confirmation, is that you know, they had this guy in the other room, the scientist or this mathematician, and he couldn't get past his normal functioning. That's pretty cool. Well, you know, yeah. In fact, I was going to mention a couple of these things that they, um, as they continued to study remote viewing, they started, well, they had to develop this uh, this language about how the brain should be appropriately studied. And one of the things mm-hmm. that they came up with is what's called emotional distractors or attractors. If you have an emotional attraction or distraction, um, remote, remote viewing is difficult. And if, if you're thinking about a beautiful woman, you can't work. No doubt, right? You know, right? they're just going to say, well, you blew the target because he, she's a distractor. And you know, you got to set her aside is what they they say. And and if you can't wow. do that, then um, the session is probably not going to be any good. And it doesn't that's, have to be a beautiful woman. Amazing. I mean, it could be your kid went to the hospital this morning and you're trying to work at Target in the afternoon. And you can't get it out of your mind, you know, that this kid is in pain, you know, or some such. I mean, it could be anything. You could be looking for a job interview and you don't know what to think about it. But if it's on your mind, you don't have a clear mind for remote viewing. And so that was one of the things that they chalked up as a problem getting good data. Wow. So it was interesting that you would bring that up because, yeah, I'm sure that that was an amazing uh, uh, definite thing that they had to do. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So, so this, at any rate, I guess the, then. How was the program in effect? <clears throat> well, it got started with the, with the threat from the Soviet Union. And just very quickly, one last thing is when they started to kill frogs, they started to, um, to see if they could uh, introduce heart attacks into people. And then they started to uh, they, they executed some prisoners that were condemned in Russia. And and so as a result, this became then a threat assessment because if you could kill people this way, or at least send them to a hospital with a heart attack, you could the Warsaw Pact countries um, could. Um, attempt to do this against the German Chancellor and the French Premier and the British Prime Minister and the American President and the Supreme Commander Allied Powers Europe. And if you take all those five people and send them to to a hospital with a heart attack on the same day, it wouldn't matter if it was an offensive or defensive war, you probably could prevail. And so it was a threat assessment, and it started in 1972 when they went to Stanford um, out in Palo Alto, California, and said, we need uh, someone to do this. They brought a Ph.D. in named um, Hal Putoff, and um, he set up the program and started in 72, actually, to find out, was this a legitimate threat? What can be done? What are, we able to, are we able to do anything with this? And so they gave him, it was, the cutoff was $50,000 back in the day, and they gave him like 49500 so they wouldn't have to report it. And he set up, uh, they have a think tank out at Stanford called Stanford Research Institute, and it's an SRI. So he was over at SRI, and they had this big magnetometer thing in the ground there and stuff, and they wanted to see if they could get a magnetic readout on remote viewing. And um, so he brought people in, and it just continued and continued. And finally, um, you know, they were they had like $50,000 out there on this program, and some guys came and said, uh, well, what they were doing, they had a lead box, and they said, okay, we're going to put stuff in there, and they're going to have remote viewers say, what's in the box? And so they'd bring the guy in the room, and um, he'd look, and he'd say, oh, that's a pencil. And they'd open it, yep, that's a pencil. The guy remote viewed that properly. He knew what was in there. So they started putting all kinds of stuff in there. So two guys, unbeknownst to um, the the program at SRI, just showed up and said, we've got a target. They're just from the government. They put a moth in there. And the moth, it's a live moth, so it's flying around. See, it's more of a difficult target because it's moving. 
and say, yeah, there's something in here. It's moving and it's brown, you know, and it, uh, it has wings, you know, and this kind of thing. And, um, the guy never really called it a moth, but everything he said about it implied that it was some kind of an insect. And so the, these two guys went back. They happened to be out of CIA, and they said, we need more funding for this. Wow. So that was kind of how it got on to the next level, from 50000 bucks to find out what you could find out to uh, funding, you know, taking this into Congress, at the, the Armed Services Committee, select committee that meets in private saying, <clears throat> we need some more money to pursue this program so Mm -hmm. that's how it got started that's kind of when it got started and um so in the book um if 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 anyone ever decides to get one of these books in the introduction here that it outlines some of the things that these guys had to document in terms of interfering with remote viewing and i was just going to mention a couple of them um One's called a physical inclemency, and that's like expected disruption, like a phone call or someone about to arrive. If you think someone's going to show up in the middle of remote viewing and you're concerned about it, you can't view. And another another thing was, um, well, if you're expecting a phone call and you're waiting for it, and I wonder why they haven't called me back yet, it's not the right time to do a session. You know, So this would be what they call the physical inclemency. You've got to get that out of your mind or your, the data stream will be polluted. Then um, we already spoke about this beautiful woman being an emotional distractor. Um, there's also a thing called advanced visuals where um, you can't get a fleeting thought out of your mind before a session. could be anything, but it keeps coming back into your head, and um, it's a problem because it will interfere once again. Two of the most important ones that they found was one's called front-loading, and that's knowledge of a target of what the target is before the viewing session. Um, there's a real problem with this, and um, they had problems with targeting because let's say that you have a nice little church chapel in a meadow, and behind it is the high Sierra Mountains, beautiful mountain, nice little chapel in a meadow, and the target is who's in that church. Well, how do you target that? You know, you have to, um, you can't front load the guy, and so... And what you'd say is, in that case, you'd say the target, describe what's inside the man-made object. Mm-hmm, That'd be it. Mm-hmm. Because everything else is natural. The mountains are natural, the meadows natural, you know, trees and forest, it's all natural. But there is one thing that's man-made. So, But he doesn't know it's a church. He doesn't know you're in a meadow. He doesn't know anything. Right. So that would be very neutral. And the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, what's called analytic overlay. And um, th- this is a case of where you don't know what the target is, but you know about the target. So um, if, like, say, let's say you know about Amelia Earhart and you figure out it's Amelia Earhart, what you already know about that mystery can interfere with the data stream because you might start to substitute prior knowledge into your report than r- what you got from just being on target as a remote viewer. So it's called AOL. And so the, the big thing with this was how do you get rid of all these things? And um, that's what the research did uh, with developing these terms and how to eliminate these problems because in a military setting, you want the best data you can get. You bet. So, you bet. so, how did so this is part of the introduction. I'm sorry? So how, did they, how did they eliminate that stuff, though? Like in the Monroe Institute... Well, they had them create this box, and then you put everything in there, so that cleared your mind. So how did the government, what, what protocols did they create to eliminate You know, box? some of those guys did, if after the program, they said that they did use Monroe tapes to cool down, as they said. And some of those guys did. I don't think McMonagall did, but um, there were some guys okay. that wanted to have that binaural audio stuff in their ears to, to get their temporal lobes in synchronization, which is what you have to do in order to be able to remote view properly as a Synchronization of temporal lobes is is important component of it, and um, mm-hmm. the, the those tapes do that for you, and and um, they call that cooling down. So, uh, but bottom line is that I, maybe I can read a, a sentence here. Um, uh, McMonagall says that you it, it'll never really go away. Um, he said I saw very little difference in the AOL pitfalls with CRV controlled remote viewing, and other methodologies. I did see that to some extent it was highly polished technique which was more easily transferred 
through training. So they were able to to bring this up person by person that came into the program, but AOL never really goes away. You have to set it aside, and sometimes AOL really isn't. Sometimes it's you're right on. It's just that it's very oddball what you just saw, and you're not sure how to connect it up. But they always want that written down on the side of the page. So um, very nice. Very nice. So at any rate, then the introduction—that's part of the introduction. Then it goes right into the Princess Diana thing. Okay. um, All right. All right. Well, we can. um, Well, let's just do that. I'll leave my side note for later. Okay, so with the Princess oh. Diana, now I just I just got a book from you. Thank you for sending me that book, but that's not today's topic. We're, we're going to cover this another time. That's the uh, Titanic after the last yes. last lifeboat. Uh, after the last yeah, just very quickly so on that, there was 20 minutes from the time the last lifeboat left the Titanic until it finally sank. And so you got 20 minutes. I mean, the history ends when the last person leaves because everybody else died. There's no history there. So we've got the 20 minutes history of what happened to the Titanic after the last lifeboat. So it's some fascinating stuff in there. All right. Well, um, I hope you'll come back and share that with us uh, at another on another show. Yeah, I was wondering if you got that book. Yes. <laughs> I'm Jeff glad got you got it. it. Jeff got it. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about Princess Diana. We all know that all right. uh, that was probably one of the worst days in history when uh, Princess Diana died in that uh, horrible, horrible car accident. And... Um, and I really, uh, when I was on your website, would you please give us that website again, Scott, for people to yeah, look at? Yeah, if anybody wants to follow along with this, it's it's www.evidentialdetails, one word, but just spell the evidentialdetails.com. And there you can go to the Princess Diana. Along the top there is a table of contents. And you can look at any one of the books, but there is a Princess Diana um tab, so to speak, that you can click on. And also there's a drop-down that says look, and what that's short for is look inside. And you can actually look inside the book and read a page uh, of of the introduction um, to these books. And I want to mention so for also, anybody that wants to go the there. Book, when you wrote them, you wrote that, you know, you've got a, a section where you can see that this, these are your comments, and then in a darker print is Bold. Joe McMonagle's. Fold is a right. Joe McMonagle's actual remote viewing report, so people can scientifically right. follow and then and then look at your comments as well. It's really fascinating. The the books are well made. It's amazing. Uh, you following this professional, um, highly trained governmental um, a gentleman that that I mean this is his whole thing. I mean I've met Joe. I've met Joe and his wife years ago, wonderful people. And, um, you know, like I said, I had the training over at the Monroe Institute, not only for, I mean, I've done astral projection for years, uh, then I had the training over there, and then I had the remote viewing over at um, Monroe Institute as well. Um, these, it's, it's a great book. It's really interesting to even have the experience, which they will train you over at the Monroe Institute. It's the actual remote viewing uh, from these people. So, uh, yes, if you guys want to get uh, Scott's books, how can they contact you for that? Well, on the website, if you um, let, let's just say you like Titanic, for example. You just go, you click on Titanic, you drop down, and you go to the book page, and then right next to the book it will be Buy. And, and just click on the Buy tab, and then um, and, and there's a PayPal button, and there's a regular credit card button, and you know just take your pick, and then click the button. It'll take you right to one of the other websites, and then uh, it would be a credit card purchase. And then it gets okay, kicked out. They the make the book. The, and it, uh, the name of the website again is evidentialdetails.com. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so um, so Princess Diana. The world okay, well, loved the, her, and the world mourned her terribly when she died. And then <clears> it's such a, a mystery of how she died also. So, uh, I mean, it's not a mystery. Oh, my God, there was a car accident. Oh, that's terrible. Boo-hoo-hoo. Well, it's <laughs> horrifying. I mean, I'll never forget that day. Yes. Was, I mean, even that week, I think uh, Mother Teresa passed as well, and they were good friends. Um, it was devastating. and um, But I don't – I personally – have never thought that it was just an accident, me personally. And um, 
And the fact that she was pregnant with uh, Dodie Fade's child also, I don't think went well with the, you know, with the. Oh, I'm sure it didn't. No, it didn't go yeah. well. I, you know, um, you know, McMonagle didn't mention anything about a pregnancy, but that doesn't mean it wasn't true. It just means that, see, okay, I had to target this somehow, and this was uh, right after the accident. And Joe called me up and said that he wanted me to um, submit a target because Life Magazine reporter was going to be there. So would I submit a target for him to work in front of the reporter? And I was really like, you know, wow. flattered that he would come in with all the people he knows. He asked me to submit it, and then Princess Diana. And see, there was all these questions uh, around Princess Diana, and was this set up, and was this an accident, or was this some kind of a killing kind of a thing? And and you know, the pregnancy thing, and was Dodie Alpha? Excuse me, not Dodie, the, the Henry Paul, the driver. Was he really drunk? You know, there's all these questions, and I thought this is a perfect target. It's timely. It was done within. Um, I don't know, we did it within 60 days, and so it was still kind of a hot topic, so to speak. And um, so I submitted, he worked it, and that Life magazine guy was just overwhelmed with, like, wow. You know, it, it was a real wow experience for him. And he called me back did later it, after he wrote the it article. Did it published in Life magazine, by the way? It did. Life magazine went out, <clears throat> went, went out of a publication and it came back for like one year or something not not very long time people tried to resurrect it and this was one of the articles that was in um life magazine um so you know what um, date that was and the way i'm sorry oh 97 you know what date that was 97 yeah i've got a copy some i gotta dig it out somewhere i know i have a copy of it um i went out and bought the issue but I'd be interested. All right, thank I, you. It's probably I would say it's in the fourth quarter because we we did it. It's, it's always like a ninety-day publishing lead time. Okay. So I would say maybe November, maybe December. Yeah, I mean, other people might. I think October is too well. soon. Yeah, it's uh, you know the uh, the unfortunately in that the uh, the edit the owners of the Life magazine were skeptics and they didn't give it the proper treatment. I didn't think. I talked to oh, Joe no. about it, and he says, well, yeah, he says, that's just the way it is. So it's yeah, not, yeah. It, they, they didn't, um, they didn't give it didn't as much it uh, proper. <laughs> well, you know, I think the reporter, they, they edited the reporter's report because the reporter was really high on this thing. He thought this was great. He wasn't aware of remote viewing and what it could do. And when you're dealing with Joe, you know, you're dealing with the best that, that there was at Stargate. So he, he's really impressive. And this guy was just like, wow, you know. So, yeah. wow. at any rate, the um, I used this this report that Joe did on on Princess Diana as the introduction to the book, and you'll know why in the end here. But what it does is that, um, it starts out where um, the day that she arrived, they had been in Sardinia, and and they were on this this boat called the Jonakil. The Fayeds had this 195-foot um, boat with a crew of 16. And so they were out cruising the Mediterranean um, uh, in this thing, and they were being followed by helicopters. And uh, wow. those paparazzi are trying to get down. I mean, they got these helicopter daredevil guys that are bringing this helicopter down to, like, <clears throat> you know, like maybe a yard off of the ocean so they can take sideways shot of, of Dodie and Di on the on the ship, and um, you know Dodie Alfayed used to get in his way pretty much, and he's out of control. Is this is where you get the Stakarazzi word comes from? Because they had this helicopters. Also, they would get off the ship, they'd go up into this nice villa on Sardinia overlooking the ocean, and the helicopters would come down right above the patio, just above the roof line, so that the propeller wouldn't hit the roof. And they'd be taking pictures, and there's all this helicopter blade wind and all this noise oh and this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and the Fayeds never saw anything like this. And wow. neither had Diana. And you say, why did this happen? Well, what they said was is because of all the stuff that's going on between these two, um, they said that, that they had the money. They were offering the money for what was called the million-dollar shot. And wow, that was critical, because if you make a million dollars for one picture, you just change your life. You just retired. You know what I mean? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's all right, over. Right. It's all a matter of getting your camera at the right place at the right time. Because you don't well, know. I've got to say this for, to you, Scott. Do you remember, I think we were talking uh, a couple of weeks ago about this. I don't know if it's in this book or if I would read it on the Internet, but I would read it recently where um, when they came across the accident that Princess Diana was still alive and because they, I yeah. think they had been doing tests in our body and that she had been given uh, some sort of shot to make sure she did not stay alive, and that was at the location of the accident. So was that from well, your there was book, a thing or was called, that different? No, it wasn't. That's not mine. Um, uh, there was a SAMU unit, SAMU, which is the um, the pickup ambulance service is what, is what that stands for, and um, it, that came to the scene. So I would think that if that is true, then it um, happened probably inside when they shut the doors on that unit because she was still alive, and then and they drove her uh, to the hospital at at about four miles per hour. Mm, really? Which is also four miles an hour? Yeah, it was. They they drove her four miles per hour, whereas in the states you get in an ambulance, they're ripping through town going sixty miles an hour, you know, type thing, doing forty five and a twenty <laughs> type thing. Um, I mean, yeah, they they, they rolled they went real if, slow. Yeah, if you've got an accident, whether it's in England or not, I would assume. If somebody else is in an ambulance, you're hightailing it to the hospital. So four miles an hour—that's that's horrifying. Well, right, it was. It was. Uh, it seems to me it took two hours to go four miles, you know, or some such type of a, a thing. I'd have to look that up. But at any rate, I mean, they're in downtown uh, Paris. There's a hospital there, you know. And yeah, um, yeah. so if there was something administered, it was, probably was in the. It's one of these truck step van type things, maybe like a a 20-foot straight truck. Uh, type of a vehicle that, that you could put gurneys into and stuff is where she went into. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the story starts in this thing with regards to they're having this big problem um, with with being stalked out in the Mediterranean, and so they fly back to, um, well, they fly to Paris, actually, and um, what's interesting in this book here is that as this is happening, um, there's this guy, a 73-year-old guy named Edward Williams from uh, Wales, um, goes to the police station, and it's, it's date stamped to 14, uh, 12 hours, so it's 2:12 in the afternoon on August 27th, and he, he tells the police that Princess Diana is going to die. And he had been into the police before, saying that the Pope was going to be shot and Ronald Reagan was going to be shot, and it, he was right both times. So oh the police God. really didn't know what to make of this, and, uh, they, and the, the, there's a paragraph out of the report in the book. It's, it's all you know, pretty much documented, and it says, Mr. Williams appeared to be quite normal. So um, it's, it's once again this thing where you know, someone has this ability to do this, and everybody's in question about him, so they have to put that in there. I thought that was kind of funny. But mm-hmm. um, this was then moved on to the Special Branch Investigative Unit, so... The British were kind of like informed, although I don't know if they believed it, that she was going to die. And so, um, and anyway, this is going on at the same time as they're coming up from the Mediterranean to Le Bourget Airport there, like 10 miles north of Paris. Mm-hmm. So they get there, and um, they don't need, um, they're, they're eligible for what's called the um, Service de Protection de Hautes Personalities, and that Hot personalities. What it is is it's the special uh, guarding of visit uh, visiting dignitaries, but this was a private visit, uh-huh. so that got waived. They said we don't want it. So they, what they did is they escorted him to the airport, and that was it. Um, once they got on, it's called Highway 1A, which is your main artery into downtown Paris, and uh, they got on there, and all of a sudden they're surrounded by paparazzi in cars and motorcycles. Double two guys riding on a motorcycle, one guy driving it, and the other guy is a photographer behind him. And they're pulling up like, you know, like uh, three feet from the car, and they've got these high-intensity flashes that go deep into the car so they can make sure that they get Dodie and Die in the picture, that it's not it's not a dim picture, it's a bright picture. And Dodie doesn't like it. You know, he's not used yeah. to this kind of stuff. His privacy is totally invaded with this. And um, so they're, and they're weaving in and out, and their strategy was to slow the – there was two – there was a, a Range Rover and a Mercedes. And their strategy was to slow this, these cars down, what they call a convoy, 
and so that they, all the paparazzi could get around a slower-moving car. So they were getting in front of it, and there was this big whirl of uh, stuff, and um, Doty was not accustomed to this, and, and based on this high seas harassment stuff, his patience is really running thin. Now, this is in the afternoon. He's been hassled all morning. And um, so the other thing that's unusual about this is you got Henry Paul, who's the head of security. He's acting head of security at a place like the Hotel Ritz, which is a big, expensive hotel. You would think that they would want to have their security chief doing something besides being a driver. So what's he doing out at the airport? You know, and that's one thing that the, he was driving the Range Rover rather than just having some kind of kid driving, you know, and he's he's the experienced 40-something, 42-year-old guy that's at the hotel. Mm-hmm. He left the hotel to go out there. So people were wondering about what's he doing out there. But at any rate, he drives to Doty's and takes the luggage, and they uh, what they, they go to this, uh, the Fayette has a, what's called a Windsor Villa outside on the outskirts of Paris. They get there about 345 and take off about 435, and, he wants her to see it, so they finally get to the um, hotel, and there's paparazzi. They're all over the hotel entrance, and this many photographers at the entrance means that the general public's like, "What's going on?" So you got mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. twice as many, maybe three times as many people packed around here because all these cameramen, and so they have a real hard time getting up but they have some protection from hotel uh, personnel that allows them to get from the the drive up uh, to the uh, hotel turnstile on this carpeting thing. Um, They make it in. And um, so Diana goes up to uh, get her hair done, and um, she calls this guy named Richard Kay at the London Daily Mail, indicates that she's going to, she has contractual obligations through November, and then that's it. She's not going to do any more. She wants to go into private life. She's she's done with this. And she also calls a psychic named Rita Rogers. And okay. um, just three weeks earlier, on uh, August 12th, Dodie and Di had gone to visit her because Diana wanted a reading on Dodie. And um, I'm going to quote here what she said. She goes, quote, I saw a tunnel, motorcycles. There was this tremendous sense of speed. Now, here's Diana calling her again three weeks later, and she says, uh, you know, she was concerned about this tunnel. She says, remember what I- what I told Dodie. It's a critical thing. So, um, at any rate, they're going to take off to go to dinner. Now, they're going to go to this very nice restaurant at, at 7.15, and they get there, mm-hmm. and they can't get in. The car is mobbed. They can't open the door. And oh um, so the bottom the bottom line is they can't go to dinner. Wow. So um, so we got this real problem, and they're, they're also mobbed, and they're trying to get into his apartment and stuff. And so... Oh, what, one thing I didn't mention is that Dodie told his people at the hotel that they were not going to be back. They were going to go to the restaurant, and they were going to go to his apartment. So that's why Henry Paul leaves. And this opens a big mystery up because everybody wants to know what was Henry Paul doing when he was gone? Mm-hmm. Was he really mm-hmm. drinking is really what the the question is. And so he takes up at 7.05, and they um, – uh, the, but as a result of this not being able to get in, <clears throat> they uh, they call and they say, we're coming back to the hotel because it seems like the hotel is the only place in Paris where these two can have dinner. And oh. see, Donnie doesn't like that either. <laughs> He's eaten there yeah, yeah, you know, a hundred sure. times probably, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, But they're back there, and um, the <clears throat> the book documents, this is, is a lot of stuff with regards to quotes, uh, like the bodyguard's name was Winfield. He says, quote, I had to protect her physically from the paparazzi who were coming really too close to her. Their cameras were right next to her face. Well, oh my God. when you got flashes like that, I mean, you could get burned. I mean, it was like he's now physically trying to protect Diana. Yeah. And so they're in there, and um, they they came through the door. It took them um, two minutes. See, the thing was is that because – there was no security anymore because they'd gone home and stuff and they didn't have time to prepare for Doty. When they got there, the paparazzi mobbed the car. There was no trail, so to speak, up to the front door turnstile. So it took two minutes to go like a 10 second walk as they were fighting to get through the crowd. I mean, it's really a well, physical I know we fight. Have a picture. There's a picture though of Diana, Doty Fayed, Fayed and um, I think Henry Paul, the driver, 
wasn't that in an elevator? Or where was that picture taken? Yeah, there is. I mean, there is a picture in an elevator. Um, um, there's, well, there's kind of a lot of pictures, actually. There's a picture of them in the vestibule as they go out the back door, and there's a picture of them getting into the car, and there's another picture of him pulling out um, in which you see Henry Paul. I think the last picture of him alive was he's pulling out. But, yeah, there was yeah. an elevator picture as well. Um, yeah, and I don't recall so, him looking drunk, honestly, when I saw that picture, by the way. Well, yeah, we're going to get to that because that's that's a, that's a documented in this thing. But you're right; he was not uh, he was not drunk. And um, so, what I was going to do is read you. I mean, we finally get to the point where, um, okay, because of analytic overlay on this thing, because the press had been saturated with this, I couldn't target this accident. I got a problem. Okay, and that's how do you target this? And so, what I finally did was I targeted Henry Paul at the Hotel Ritz before the car left. And this would be, see, how you target something is important with regards to what kind of result you're going to get. And okay. um, so, so I was going to read you this one paragraph about how McMonagall operates. These books are the only place where you can get raw in, uh, Operation Stargate intelligence data. Everything else has been um, pretty much uh, run through some intelligence sources. But this is raw data, McMonagall. I find myself standing next to a man who is inside some kind of a public building. He is approximately five foot ten inches in height, good build, good condition physically. He weighs about 165 pounds, is clean shaven, light brown hair, right handed, 38 to 40 years of age, and not British or American, meaning he probably has another language other than English as his native tongue. Now that's the kind of information that military intelligence wanted. Wow. If you say the guy's got a beard, wrong guy. Right? Right, if you right. see the guy weighs 400 pounds, wrong guy. Wrong guy, yep. So McMonagall makes it clear who he's talking about here. And as it turned out, uh, he did weigh 167 pounds, and he was 41 years old. So McMonagall's right on, and his, his major language is French, but he did speak fluent English and some German. So he's also right about the guy's language and not being British or American. Mm-hmm. So... Um, he also describes the building interior and uh, where Paul is standing and his driver orientation. And uh, he describes the car as a, as a limo. It's not a stretched limo, but a short, black, and formal kind of a car. And um, it's it's interesting to see how this guy works a target, really. Um, so and he, and he talks about how the car is, is uh, um, well, he picks the emblem on the car. He's not sure what kind of car it is, but the emblem he draws is a Mercedes emblem. And um, so the the, book, the 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 introduction then goes into information about Henry Paul's mixed motivations, and what we come to here is why Paul is out at the airport rather than taking care of the hotel. And um, Paul had um, Paul had worked as security assistant security agent, um, and then the guy he reported to quit and left went somewhere else. And they hired a new guy to come in. So Paul stayed as assistant security chief. They passed over him. Now, just 30 days earlier, they said that, you know, the guy quit again. And they said, we're going to get someone else. And so they passed over Paul a second time. But as it turned out, the hotel Ritz is where foreign dignitaries come and stay because it's like either the nicest or one of the nicest places in all of Paris. So and he had control of the security camera equipment. So maybe um, maybe the Germans want to know, back to so you had East Germany and West Germany back then, um, they want to know, maybe the West Germans want to know when the ambassador from East Germany leaves. Paul said it'll cost you right, 2500 right. bucks. Okay, there so, they, yeah, no but problem. I mean, you got, you know, you got, uh, so they said, okay, fine. Well, he left at, uh, you know, 610 and he got back at uh, 12. 17, you know, something like that. And so there's all this data about how long was the East German ambassador absent from the hotel so they would know exactly, you know, how much time they had to trace him with. He was making big money this way. And he's concerned now about protecting this. He had uh, he had this money spread out about 18 different bank accounts so that there was no one bank account that um, would be um, – uh, well, here, let me do it. He started in, in, in 1986 there. and um, You're talking about Henry Paul, the driver, right? Right. He started in 86, and he was carrying the 12,560 francs that when they when they found him. 
where the money came from is unknown, um, but he was one of only two men in France that had access to the automobile conversations of Dodie and Die. That's worth money. Okay, okay. So so he could advise the press of their plans. Go ahead. So moving us forward, um, we're at the car. Now, how does Joe McMonagle... Get in. So Joe is now in the car with Henry, and he's observing everything. Then the, cla- the crash happens. I mean, what's happening there? Okay, we're going to move on. We're going to, next thing I was going to mention was this um, moderate chronic alcoholism for a, minute, for a minimum of one week is what they said, and they had some phony laboratory reports. But, okay, so um, Joe also says where uh, Dodie was, excuse me, where Henry Paul was before he returns that's also in this chapter here. And uh, then there's this uh, write-up from a guy named Skinner that looks at the evidence uh, from the tapes about Henry Paul walking around. <clears throat> and then the other guy is a butler, or excuse me, a bodyguard named Reese Jones. He says that, uh, you know, I, think, I like to think I have enough intelligence to see if the guy was plastered or not, and he wasn't. So there's all this, these problems. But moving on to Joe's stuff, um, and I just want to make um, sure we have enough time because, believe it or not, it's, we only have um, maybe um, 12 minutes left here. Ten minutes. I'm like, wow, this hour's almost flown by. So I just want to make sure we get everything. Yeah, that's here. right. Okay. Well, so they, they set up a back door, front door thing, and they get the Range Rover in front to uh, move, and everybody's expecting when they're revving up the engine that they're going to come flying out of there, and they decide to go out the back door. And so let me see where I get to the point here where I can read something um, where it starts. Okay. Um, McMonagall, believe the car is the main focus of this target. The man, Paul, may also be of interest. I put Paul in there. He didn't know who it was. I believe the target has to do with an accident that probably occurred either in the very late hour, night hours or possibly very early morning hours. Traffic is very light and the streets are very quiet. Get a sense that there are a few cars about in a place which is usually crawling with cars. The Mercedes is moving very fast from what apparently is a northwest direction, and this is actually when they pull out, they have to move northwest to get onto the entrance, onto the, the entrance ramp. Um, I have a sense that it goes over an overpass or a cloverleaf kind of interchange, which then drops straight down into a tunnel. So he starts following this car, but then with regards to being inside the car, let me switch over here. Um, oh, yeah, the Mercedes pulls out to pass a slower vehicle, at a point in the road where the road ahead rises upward to a secondary overpass. Because of the rise in the road, the driver can't see oncoming traffic in time to avoid it, specifically at this speed. Now, oncoming doesn't mean reversed flow traffic. Oncoming means that he's going 100 miles an hour in this straightaway area, and he's overtaking cars. So this is how Paul sees it as an oncoming car. This would be what you're seeing through the windshield. So he mentions this again. Paul sees it that way, way, or Joe McMonagall sees it that way? Well, they both see it that way. Paul's behind the steering wheel looking through the windshield. He sees an oncoming car, but it's not reverse flow. It's uh, It's a white Toyota. And so McMonagall says, I believe he sees an oncoming car, which appears to be some kind of a black or dark green sedan. I want to say a Citroen. He passes one and nicks it, and the next car that's oncoming is a Citrian, but they're both in the same flow of traffic. And so uh, he gets, what I'm asking uh, this, what I'm asking this, uh, what I'm asking here, Scott, is um, okay. so we're realizing now that uh, Henry uh, Paul, who's a driver, yeah. is now speeding at excessive speeds, like a hundred miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get this here. Vehicle is moving very quickly, perhaps a neighborhood of approximately 100 miles an hour, even maybe even a bit faster in some spurts or straightaways, according to McMonagall. So, wow. um, yeah. This is see. This is the, the, the thing exciting. about it is, is that um, it is. And then I've got this footnote down here. The curve in the road is 480 meters, 0.3 miles, in front of the next tunnel, which provides an acceleration area, but a subsequent curve and dip, because of a subsequent curve and dip, it was not possible to negotiate that section of highway at high speed. See, I really did my homework on this stuff. And um, So what, I, what I'm asking you fast. is, are they thinking, are they thinking that um, Henry Paul, and I don't know why he'd do this, they were saying he was either drunk, or was he trying to avoid the paparazzi, or was he paid 
to have this accident to kill uh, Diana and uh, Jody. And if he was paid you know, it's, and he knew um, he was going to die in the accident, you know, where would his money have gone to? <clears throat> You know, in here there's a Doty's last words thing, and it's not actually word for word, but the bottom line is, is that Doty's telling him, get 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 away from these paparazzi. This is a, um, a Doty is once again angry about all of this, and he's telling Paul to get moving, get get out of here. Um, uh, he's being ordered to go faster and to do more erratic things, and so wow. Doty is leading this. And yeah. and you know here yeah. you have. You you have this situation where Diana is put into this thing where she's got an irate man with her. She's been all messed up and, and, and pushed around and jostled all day long. She's got the guy who's behind the wheel wants to make his best impression on the boss's son because he's worried about losing his job, and she gets into this car. And it's all wrong. You know, all the circumstances are bad, and the paparazzi's all over them. They had the back door covered at the hotel as well. Sure. So, um, it, um, and this is where we're going to get to to the end here. Um, to avoid oncoming traffic, the Mercedes driver swerves hard to the right and catches a small car he is passing with his rear bumper. The car was that was passed was hit. As a result, the Mercedes slews around just missing the oncoming car, which it has just passed, and the driver then begins to overcorrect his steering. And so this is how this happens. Mercedes hits the side to the left, the slews across, and it hits the right, then swings back to the left where it catches what appears to be a concrete tier or pier. It was a 13th pillar of some kind of concrete pilasters or some kind of upright concrete dividers, which it hits nearly head on. And if you look in the tunnel there, that's exactly what it is. It's like columns, like, you know, the columns, the, the concrete columns that hold the bridge up and make it into a tunnel. He hits the 13th mm-hmm. one, and the car just goes right up. The, the, the rear tires just go right up in the air, and Paul's killed immediately. And um, so is Doty mm-hmm. is killed. So, um, so Doty and Paul are killed immediately, but... So now, when Joe McMonagle was doing this remote viewing, did he state that Princess Diana or this woman was still alive in the car, or did he even see that? Or Yeah, no, he doesn't state. Let me see if there's anything here. No, he does, He talks about how he doesn't think the British intelligence was involved. And he talks about how they found CO2 samples in his blood, but, um, you know, um, Al Fayed says, how is it possible that my son had all the CO2 in his blood and Henry Paul had none? There's that kind of a thing. Right. But, no, it doesn't say anything about Diana still being alive. Yeah. Because, and here's why. We're gonna, we're getting to the very end here, and um, McMonagall does all this stuff, and then he goes to backseat, dra- backseat travelers, what he calls it. He's going to remote view Doty and Die on this now. This is what I kind of wanted. He goes, Backseat travelers, major problem. When I try to access others who might have been in the car, I get a heavy analytic overlay and interference as it relates to Diana's death in France. My head fills up with all kinds of motorcycles and all kinds of news that was being broadcast about the incident. I believe there are at least two others in this target car, but digging anything out of the overlay is completely impossible. Uh, There is a sense these people in the backseat want that they want to be alone together, but again, I then get overwhelmed with all this Princess Diana stuff, and it all runs together. So I can't begin to tell where the overlay begins and the real data ends. Would prefer to say nothing. End of session. Wow. And there, there you have it. That's that's how the military worked. If you're not sure what you're doing, you call an end of the session. Wow, and so he knew at this point then when he was in here. So at the beginning, he didn't know what this target was, but eventually he knew. Oh no! This was Princess Diana. Yeah, this is see, this is where this and see that's why I start this this introduction out with these things because people, um, you know, over and analytic overlay and um, these these emotional distractors and things definitely came into play on this target, and mm-hmm. so and people also. I think it's helpful for people to know that this was a very well thought out type of a discipline with regards to, uh, you know, psi functioning, and, uh, and that's how it, it winds up with the Princess Diana thing. It's very so fascinating. It's, a, it's a kind of a strange ending. 
I'm sorry? Well, it's very fascinating in the fact that um, there has been so much uh, controversy over uh, was this uh, a setup, you know, where Princess Diana uh, was killed intentionally. And um, Well, see, that's after was, the accident. There is an argument to be made that it took two hours to get to a hospital that was four miles away when in the States it would have been ten minutes to get to the hospital. So, but right. <clears throat> not in the uh, accident. There's a, okay in this chapter. I have an aftermath, and um, they, the um, the two officers that show up there um, uh, says, "I finally got to the vehicle." This is a guy named Dorsey. He got to the vehicle. The rear passenger Diana was also alive. She seemed to be in better shape than Reese Jones. However, blood flowed from her mouth and nose. There was a deep gash on her forehead. She murmured in English, but I didn't understand what it was. Perhaps my God, and so yeah, I mean she actually was able to talk after the accident, so no question she was alive. Wow, she was well, facing see, back. There you go. Yeah, I mean she was alive, and Reese Jones was 31 days in the hospital because he was so beat up, but he finally did was released, and uh, um, you know on his own power, so to speak, he was able to walk away from the hospital. But it took that long. Um, he he was lucky. He was he was in the front seat, and you know he, he was just lucky. So, and who again um, was Reese Jones? Who was Reese Jones? <clears throat> he was the bodyguard that was with Prince Diana. Oh, so Reese Jones. There was, was four guys in the car. There was the Henry Paul driver, and there was Reese Jones bodyguard, and then in the back was uh, uh, um, Dodie and Die. So Henry died right away. Dodie died right away. Uh, Princess Diana was still alive, and Reese Jones. Well, I'll tell you what, Reese. He was Jones unconscious, but he made life. it. Yeah, but but he, if he's still alive today, he's he had to have gone through a lot of interviews and a lot of uh, everything about just what the heck was happening. Oh yeah, he did, and uh, how much of that stuff actually made it out, I don't know. Um, right. I do have a thing. He I do have him quoted as Henry Paul was not drunk. I could read that paragraph, too, if you want to hear it. Sure, would love um, to. It says, I had no reason to suspect that he, now he's talking about Paul, that he was drunk. He did not look or sound like he had been drinking. He just seemed his normal self. He was working. He was competent. End of story. I can quite categoric. I can state quite categorically that he was not a hopeless drunk, as some have tried to suggest. I like to think I have enough intelligence to see if the guy was plastered or not, and he wasn't. So yeah, that really wipes out this drunken thing. There's that, but then the other thing about it was is that, um, <clears throat> okay, let me just read this. Unbeknownst to the authorities issuing the report, just two days before the accident, Paul had completed a rigorous physical examination to renew his pilot's license. See, Paul was Air Force, uh, French Air Force security. <clears throat> Excuse me, is how he got the job. And so he was also a pilot. He trained for fighter pilot but didn't make it. But he had to go through what this was called in French. It's called a Certificate d'Aptitude Physique et Mental. And what that is is it's a physical and mental test, quote, and it said on there, no signs of alcoholism, right, on the pilot test, 48 wow. hours wow. earlier. And, but they didn't wow. know that. Well, and so least, we had this direct at least we know that medical he was conflict. Competent, though. Yeah, at least we know that he was competent. There's going to be a lot of questions around things like this. Princess Diana, a major... Um, a major uh, world-renowned person, um, Dodie Fayed, yep. him also. I mean, it was fascinating, but there's still going to be questions all the time. And I've got to tell you, I cannot believe this. I want to say thank you for joining us. Our hour has flown by. It was crazy yes. um, how was fast quickly. it was. Scott, I love you being on the show. You've got so much more um, in this work. Would you come back again? Yes, I would, you know, and what I would say maybe is look that Titanic book over a little bit, at least if I know you're a busy person, and so you may not have time to read a book on the site or something, but look at the pictures and the uh, the picture captions, and you get an idea about what we found out about the Titanic, and we can do a, since you've got the book, we can do a Titanic show, and you could maybe highlight some questions about Titanic if you'd like. I would love that. Before we go, and it's time to hang up just momentarily, please give your website out again and how people can reach you. Okay, yes, it's evidentialdetails.com, 
and along the top will be the different books. And if you like Amelia Earhart or, you know, whichever, you, you just pull it down, and everyone has a look inside page. And um, uh, But it's evidentialdetails.com, one word. Um, Sounds great. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today, and we will talk to you very soon, okay? Yes, sounds good. Thanks, then. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.